Hey, good morning, everybody. The old red hymnal. Mr. Cameron Bierman, could you please fetch a red hymnal for Mrs. Peters and Nancy, please? Yes, on the bottom shelf there, just bring it on up here for them. Hey, you go sit down. Uh, hymn 260. 260. Cameron, I'll tell you what, if you were a real gentleman, you might even open the hymnal up for them. I knew you were a gentleman. You've got good parents. 262. 260. 260. 260. 260. I did not say 262. You know what 262 is? I do. Another time. Okay, 260. Stanzas 1, 2, and 6. Oh Lord, look down from heaven, behold. And let thy pity waken. How few are we within thy fold. Thy saints by men forsaken. True faith seems quenched on every hand. Men suffer not thy word to stand. Dark times have us o'ertaken. With fraud which they themselves invent, thy truth they have confounded. Their hearts are not with one consent On thy pure doctrine grounded While they parade without word show They lead the people to and fro in errors maze astounded. Defend thy truth, O God, and stay this evil generation and from the error of its way. Keep thine own congregation, the wicked everywhere abound, and would thy little flock confound, but thou art our salvation. Let us pray. Almighty and merciful God, of your bountiful goodness, keep us, keep from us all things that may hurt us, that we, being ready in both body and soul, may cheerfully accomplish whatever you would have us do. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's take a look at the congregation at prayer. The verse of the week... 1 Peter 5, 7. This is a real short one. Let's speak this together. Cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Okay, I'm going to uh, do this. I've broken these up on the board, these two lines like this, on purpose because... Uh, we're going to work backwards here. This part is this is the promise. He cares for you. That's the promise. That's the guarantee. And therefore, because he cares for you, this is what you can do. Uh,
because of the promise. And what you can do because of the promise is to cast your care upon him. Who is him? Jesus. Yes. Okay. So, uh, I think that this is fun. Care happens two times here. And it doesn't mean the same thing. Isn't English fun? Uh, in the Greek... And I did look at this just this morning <clears throat> to make sure that I wasn't just spitting hot air. It's different words. But the way that it translates uh, isn't the easiest from the Greek into the English. <clears throat> so we use care. <coughs> Excuse me. When we say care here, what does that really refer to? Problems. Yeah, problems. Anything else? Worries, which should make you think of what? Matthew 6, because that's where Jesus says, hey, don't worry. Why do you worry so much? Look at the birds. Do they worry? Look at the flowers. Do they worry? If they don't worry, why should you? Aren't you way better than they are? Don't you think God's going to take care of you at least as much as he takes care of these? That's what Jesus says. That's not what I say. Jesus says that. Okay? Yes. This translation, the, I don't know, what do I find it be? Cast all your anxieties. Mm -hmm. And then, then they use cares in the next phrase, but they don't use care in both places. In this yeah, what translation is that? Um, New International. Okay, okay. Yeah, so care, it, to be very broad, what the word really means is anything that is sort of overtaking you, anything on which you are obsessing. So cast it all on Jesus. Why? Because of the promise. And what is the promise? He cares for you. Can you say this in a different way? For he loves you. He loves you. Jesus loves you. And that means Jesus is never going to hurt you. Well, sure, he couldn't take care of you and only take care of your spirit. Your, no, he couldn't. He couldn't. It's impossible because you are not your spirit. And you are not your body. You are both together. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I don't want to wreck the sermon or anything. <laughs> but that's part of what it means to be man, is that you are body and soul. If he only interacts with you with your soul, he's not actually taking care of you. And if he only takes care of your body but neglects your soul, likewise, he is not taking care of you. He must interact with you on both levels, the spiritual and the physical. We talked about this last week in terms of the sacrament. Why, does, why do the sacraments have to have earthly, earthly elements attached to them? Because God has to interact with you on the spiritual and the temporal and the physical. So it has to be both. So he will never hurt you. He will always take care of you. He will always give you that which you need, just like Matthew 6 says. Don't worry about what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat. The Lord will provide. You'll always have everything that is good and needful for you to have. It doesn't always mean you'll be comfortable, but it does mean that you will always have what you need. And it won't always happen the way that you think. That doesn't mean that you will always have enough money to do the things that you want or to get the things that you need. But it does mean that you will always have the opportunity for those things. And the, what I'm driving at is, hey, what's the church supposed to do? Take care of each other. So read that quote from Aristides of Athens that I have out on the, on the bulletin board again. I keep that out there because it's so good. If, if, because one of the things he says is, hey, if one of these Christians dies and his family can't afford the funeral, other people from the church all chip in and they take care of that cost. And sometimes that means that some of the families from the church actually have to fast for two or three days and not eat and spend their grocery money 
going to the funeral instead of eating themselves. And that's beautiful. That's how we take care of one another as the body. So Christ works in and by and through his body so that you always have what you need. Now, he cares for you. Uh, this is here, this word cast. Throw them onto Jesus. Burden him. Load him up. It's like taking your luggage and throwing your luggage into the car for a trip. So this immediately, this language should make you think of two things. The first thing it should make you think of is the baby who is born amidst the animals. Why? Because he is an animal. Jesus. What is Jesus? He is the beast of burden. And the second thing it should make you think of is Jesus' request to you that is remarkably similar to what Peter says to you. Go figure. And that is, hey, let's trade burdens. You're carrying some heavy stuff. Why don't you take it off and put it on me, and I'll take what I have, and I'll give it to you. Won't that be nice? Because I am the beast of burden, not you. So I'll be the one that carries the packs and the weight. And then you can walk beside me on the way, and you can carry my load. And my load is a load of grace and mercy. And that's really easy to bear. Yes? <clears throat> uh, when I see the word cast, too, what comes to mind is that Jesus telling the disciples to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's used in a little different sense. Sure. But still, casting has a, like today we fish, we cast our lines. Yeah. Like that. So that, uh, there Jesus talked about then casting your net. Yeah. Throw it out. So in, in, this, in this case, what he wants you to do is to take all the things that are on you and throw them onto him instead. Because he'll take care of them, and if he's going to take care of them, you don't have to. Okay, let's speak this again. Cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Okay, what is the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? What does this mean? The kingdom of God certainly comes by itself, even without our prayers. But we pray in this petition that it would come to us also. How does God's kingdom come? God's kingdom comes when our Heavenly Father gives us His Holy Spirit, so that by His grace we believe His Holy Word, godly lives here in time, and there in eternity. We're going to do this super fast. What is the kingdom of God? That's not a catechism question. That's my question. What is the kingdom that we would pray for it to come to us? The, uh, the whole Christian church. Mm, no, it's, it's, it's something very, very, very specific. Sometimes we say the word king, or the phrase kingdom of God and we don't, we think of it as a place, and it isn't actually. The kingdom of God is the crucified Christ. The kingdom of God is the crucified Christ. It is the person of the crucified Christ. And we pray in this petition that God's kingdom would come to us we want Jesus. And you see all of that here in this last question. How does God's kingdom come? Well, our Heavenly Father gives us his Holy Spirit, blah, 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 so that by his grace we would believe his holy word. But what is this grace? It is what he puts into you. How do you, what, what do we confess in the creed? How do you believe? Not by yourself, but by the working of the Spirit. He puts something into you, and what is the content of your belief? It is Christ, 
crucified and risen. And what he puts into you, he wants to create faith and he wants it to be nourished. And uh, how is it nourished? By word and sacrament. So when you're praying that God's kingdom would come to you, you're praying for the continued work of the grace that he has put into you, the grace of Christ, and you're praying for all of the benefits that you may reap from Christ, and in fact praying for the person of Christ. And what does it do? We want to live godly lives. But that sounds like works. Darn tootin' it does sound like works. Guess what? Because it is. Because we're not against works. The Lord wants you to live good works, and he wants you to do that according to his grace. You can't do any good apart from him, but he gives himself to you so that you would live. So you live godly lives here in time, but also there in eternity. Where is there? In heaven. Yes. So you're going to live godly lives here and be holy to the best that you can, and it'll only be better there. And what's the deal about living holy lives here in time? Why does that matter? Yes. What did you say? <laughs> Brother, I know how that goes. Because what do we say in the Athanasian Creed at the very end? Christ returns to do what? When Christ comes again, what's he coming to do? Okay, yes, but after he raises the living and the dead, what does he do? Judge. And what is the basis of his judgment? Yes, who, those who have done good. Yeah. Wait a minute. What does that sound like? Works. Works. Guess what? Because it is. Because the Lord comes to judge by works. But how do you, how do you have works that are worth being judged? By the grace of God. That's what we're saying here in this in this petition, in praying, thy kingdom come. All of this. Okay, kids, you can go to Sunday school. Of the Athanasian Creed? Well, yeah. Faith apart, or it works apart from faith doesn't do anything, obviously. In fact, the Christian position is that there is no such thing as a good work apart from faith, which means that even the most altruistic, selfless pagan is still a pagan and doesn't actually do anything good. So look, look, you know, look at the world and, and think of some of these I don't know, these billionaire investors who do all this good and who give back to the community and who do this and that. And what does the world say? They are so good. They're such good people. They do such good things. But what does the Christian say? They ain't good. <laughs> Apart from Christ, there is no good. Which means that even me not murdering my neighbor, apart from Christ, is not good. Because it's me trying to do something all by myself, which the Lord looks at and says, what do you, what do you, what do you think you're trying to do here? This, you think this is going to work? And hopefully you say, huh, no. How do I make it work? And he says, well... Let me show you, okay? Sort of like what the young lawyer says to Jesus. Now, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, 
Let me tell you. Love the Lord. Ooh, that's all? <laughs> well, with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, yes. Oh, okay. Well, that's significantly more difficult. How do I do that? Only by the grace of God. What do I believe? I believe that I cannot believe. Oh, well, then what am I supposed to do? Don't fight God when he tries to call you to believe. Oh, okay. That should be easy, shouldn't it? Uh, no, it's not. Because the flesh loves a good fight. All right, questions about the verse of the catechism? All right, very good. I'm going to really, we're going to try and finish up this first chunk of the fourth commandment um, from the large catechism. There's still more to the fourth commandment. This is only like the first half of, of that. So I'd like to get through this and then we can, we can talk some more. <laughs> Daryl, uh, and uh, I hope you all uh, said thank you to him for leading class and uh, we are glad of his willingness to do that. I gave him a special version of the handout with, with notes and everything on it and he gave it back to me and he had circled, here's where to start the next time you come to teach. And I looked at it and I said, well, he took a leaf out of my book. Because I, uh, I, th I said, well, to myself, I th I'm sure that they'll be able just to do all of this. And then I gave it to him and said, yeah, they'll, that'll be fine. And then I said, okay, well, we've still got, we got some to do. So I'm glad you had good discussion. That's good and uh, important. It makes me happy. So here's, this is the bullet point I want to start on. All people are equal. I have just one little quote there. All people are equal. Now that one sentence should be obvious to you. All people are equal. Is there any person who is inherently better than any other person? No. Now there, there is a temptation sometimes. This is, this is prevalent maybe in, in Roman Catholic circles, in Orthodox circles, in some Lutheran circles. People think that the pastor is better than the laity. Well, pastor, you know, he's up here. And, you know, we're here, and that's fine, but, but pastor's up here, or the bishop's up here, or the priest is up here, and, you know, we're sort of here. And, uh, you know, if that's what people think, then repent, especially if you are the pastor. If that's what you think, then <laughs> repent. Because you're, and this is all in the vocabulary, the pastor is not better than the people. In fact, the pastor is not even more holy than the people. Now, is the pastor called to a different level of authority than the laity? Well, sure, in spiritual matters, but guess what? I still go to Larry Russell to do my taxes because getting ordained didn't change my lack of understanding about all things money. <laughs> God bless my wife, I'll tell you that, because she handles the books. We would be in a very sorry state in our household if that were left up to me, because I'm bad at it. I never balanced a checkbook even. Uh, I just kind of knew, well, you know, I've gone about this much, I'm pretty sure. I never ran into any troubles, but then we got married. And I'll tell you what, we got married and I said, oh, right. well, I got to really start being responsible about this. So I tried to start being responsible and then we had like a $700 discrepancy. <laughs> it was really bad. And then Carolyn just took it over and it, it took her all afternoon on a Saturday to, to fix the books. And guess who caused all of the troubles? It was all me. It was all me, 100%. So I just don't do that anymore. So the point that I'm making here is in spiritual matters, there are levels of authority. Does Jesus ask you to go and baptize and preach and you know, speak the verba and distribute the sacrament, the Eucharist. Does he ask you to do that? How do you know that he does not ask you to do that? Because he's pointing 
Pardon me. Yes, good, because he has appointed shepherds. Beautiful language. Thank you for that. And how has he appointed shepherds? Called. Called and ordained. Called and ordained. And where do you see the call and the ordination happening? Through what means? This is very important. Do you just decide... Well, pastor is long-winded and we had a taste of Daryl teaching Bible class and we would like him to be pastor instead so we'll hold a voters' assembly meeting and we'll elect Daryl to be the president. Pastor, you're out. Daryl, you're in. Is that how the church calls and ordains? Oh, no, I just gave the answer away. I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the, me <laughs> the means of the call and the ordination are through the church. So how do you know that Jesus has not asked you to do those things? Because the church has not asked you to do those things. How do you know that I am asked to do those things? Because the church has very vocally and publicly asked me to do those, and the culmination of that is in the, in, in the holy ordination, in which the holy orders of the Lord are given to me. It's like... I'm in the military, and I've got my marching orders. The pastor's what? Like, I don't know my ranks in the military. Lieutenant? I don't know, something like that. I report to somebody way higher up than myself, but I still have people under me, and he says, here's what you're going to do, and I just say, yes, sir. I don't ask questions. But that doesn't translate the same way into the secular. Why do we have a pastor and a congregational president? <laughs> because I need this, someone to smack my hands. I have a whole congregation to do that. Luther called it the kingdom of the left and the kingdom of the right. Sure, good. Yeah, the kingdom of the left and the kingdom of the right. By the way, if you've read the pastor's report you, uh, for the meeting today, uh, sometimes pastors need to have their hands smacked a little bit. And a good pastor will listen after a few smacks, depending on how thick his head is. Mm -hmm. Kingdom of the left and the kingdom of the right. What's the difference between the two? One's the spiritual and one's the... Uh, I want to use the word every day, that's not right. For the, uh, Practical? Yeah. yeah the, Secular, you can sec say. Yeah, so earthly, temporal affairs. So let me ask you this. Do you want the pastor who just told you that he can't even manage the finances of his own household to be in charge of all of the secular affairs, all of the business dealings, managing all of the insurance things? God bless Chris Krueger. Do you want that pastor to be also in charge of all of that? Do you want him balance? Do you want me balancing the books here? No, no you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. So we have a congregational president who oversees all of the temporal affairs of the congregation, who assists the pastor and the congregation by taking over certain responsibilities. And I will very heartily acknowledge, and any regular old pastor should, that there are people in the congregation who know more than you and who are better than you at certain things. Now, obviously, if we want to talk theology, in the region of Mound City, Missouri, there are not many people who have gone to get advanced degrees in theology and classics and biblical languages. And guess what? That's fine. But I don't have to be the guy in charge of telling you how to plant your fields. And thank God for that, because guess how much I know about that? Nothing. I don't know anything about that. I don't know anything about when to spray. I don't know anything about what to spray. I know nothing. You don't need me over that aspect of your life. And there are people in the church who are called to, like the trustees, shall we say. 
Do I know, am I the most handy guy in the world? No, I'm not. And I will admit that. So it's good that I am not the person that says, hey, you know what? Oh, I'm pastor. I got to be in charge of blah, 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 fixing the drywall. That's good that I don't know how to do that and will tell you that I don't. You can learn anything on YouTube. But YouTube does not make uh, a qualified worker. And all of those things, YouTube's great, but YouTube is still theory. And there is a pretty large gap between the theory and the practice. So, you know, I wouldn't go down to MC Auto and say, hey, give me a job. I want to fix, I want to help you fix cars. I watched a couple YouTube videos. I think I know what I'm doing. <laughs> okay. So, there's degrees of authority, but the quality of the person is not different. I am the same as the newborn infant. You are a person, and every person has the same value. So, nobody is better than the other. All people are equal. Yet, and this is sort of what I've just said, according to authority, there is a hierarchy with God at the top, followed by parents. Hierarchies are very important. The military has a hierarchy. The church is a hierarchy. Why is the church a hierarchy in particular? Think about the church as an earthly reflection of heaven. Remember, I've said this so many times, when you go to church, you are as close to heaven as is humanly possible for you to be before the resurrection. So that being the case, heaven is a hierarchy. And we don't often think about this. Heaven is a hierarchy. There are orders. Look at the structure of angels. Ranks, dominions, principalities, powers, angels, archangels, all the company of heaven. We even use that language. There are different ranks. There is a hierarchy. Um, there's a really great, great quote from a philosopher from Spain in the 17th century. And he says, um, hierarchies are heavenly in hell Everybody is equal. So, you know, American politics. Let's look at that for a minute. And American politics is modeled after what other kind of politics? Really, 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 really big deal. Roman politics. Rome was a republic. And if you want to be a real pedant, and I encourage you to be, what is the structure of government that the United States has? If you'd say democracy, you are wrong. Constitutional republic. A constitutional or a democratic republic, which is modeled after the Republic of Rome. And part of the purpose of a republic is to do what with all the people? Make them equals. Everybody gets a say. Everybody gets a representation. This is fair. Everyone's going to be equal. But the church isn't like that. The church is a hierarchy. American Christianity has some very, I mean, so Christianity in all the regions of the world has some interesting struggles that they deal with, and each region, each part of the world has its own unique little problems. One of the problems with American Christianity, not just Lutheranism, just Christianity in general in the United States is we want to incorporate American politics and the philosophy of the republic into everything that the church does. 
But that isn't the way it works. We have a hierarchy. We answer to God. Uh, you don't all get to do the same things that the pastor gets to do. Or to use better language, not get to, but you're not commanded or asked to do the same things. There are different levels. Where do you go if you want Jesus? Where do you go if you want Jesus to tell you your sins are forgiven? Well, you come to the pastor, but you can't just go to any old person off the street and get the same thing because we're not all equals according to authority. So there is a hierarchy. And God is at the top, and according to the fourth commandment, parents are, are under God in the order of, of authorities. We talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago, but that means... That means that when you send your kids to the public school, the parents are still the authority, not the teachers. Now, sure, the teachers have authority over your children when your children are in their classroom, but why is it that teachers have that authority? Because parents allow it. Now, you're beginning to see with that statement the stark contrast between philosophies of authority. You know, what do you see so often? And this is, I'm not ragging on public school teachers here, okay? This is not, uh, this is not an attack on public school. But what do you see, generally speaking, in the movement of some of these public schools in culture nowadays? Who answers to whom? Parents answer to teacher. But I think that's because of parents. Parents have ceded authority. Yes. Part of that is because parents don't want to be parents. Parents have other priorities in life. You have my generation, who was perhaps raised by a generation that, speaking generally, of course, I'm not being specific. Um, my generation in the United States, raised by a generation that was maybe a little more absent, had a, quite a bit more than the generation before them, lived maybe a little more lavishly, wanted to enjoy what they had, didn't want to have to do the same work that they had to do or their parents had to do, tried to live a little bit more relaxed. And they raised children, but in being a little more hands-off than what their parents were, ended up being a little more distant from their children. And my generation was raised by the people raised a little more distant. And then my generation is now raising their own children and my generation is very distant from their children. But here's the deal, I'm technically considered a millennial. And this is important for you to know because I'm 32 years old. And I am a, yeah, <laughs> but the point, I'm not saying that I am old. I'm saying millennials are older than people think. The whole, oh, millennials these days, that millennial generation. Guess what? We're out of the millennial generation, okay? It's not millennials anymore. Millennials have already had kids. We're all adults now. It's Gen Z. It's the Gen Zers. And what do you see with the Gen Zers? Well, kids are kind of more of a commodity. I'll have a baby. And this is, so this is what I saw with the pandemic, okay? And actually, this was a little bit heartbreaking during the pandemic, because here's the thing. You had parents that then got to work from home, or had to work from home. I don't know how you want to say it. Did you get to or did you have to? Whatever. And their kids didn't go to school. They were home with their kids. And this is what you heard. What, am I expected to watch my kids? And you know, somebody asked me that and I said, yes, actually, you are. Now I know that's hard to believe that you would have children and then actually have to be responsible for them. Okay, but that's something that's now a little bit absent, so that's certainly, it's never just one-sided. Parents have ceded all authority. Where else do you see that, by the way? I'll tell you. The Church of Youth Sports. 
And guess what? It's a church. So the Church of Youth Sports exists, and I'm not saying youth sports are bad. Fine, let your kids play sports. Um, I ran track. That was fun. I didn't do well at team sports. I couldn't catch a ball. I couldn't hit a ball. <laughs> Guess what? Not a whole lot's changed. But I could run. You know, so I ran track. That was great. It was fun. I did a lot of that. But there were boundaries with youth sports. But what has happened now is you have second, third, fourth, fifth graders playing, what, 60 to 100 games a summer? Then during the school year, six nights out of the week, they're playing four games a night, and then what do they do on the one night that they don't have anything? Oh, that's practice. Well, what happened there? What happened to the boundaries? Parents had the authority to say no, and they didn't. They ceded authority, okay? So the new landscape is that parents don't have authority, that teachers have authority, or worse, the state has authority. When the government comes and says, your children are belong to us, that's a problem. You, the, the reality of the fourth commandment as it pertains to parental authority is parents have authority over their children and anybody else who does have authority over their children has that authority by right of the parents allowing it. So that if the parents said no more, then that authority ends. And why would parents, according to this fourth commandment structure, offer authority to teachers? For, I'm just using teachers as the easy example, okay? But there are lots of other coaches, government, you name it. Lots of different authorities. So why would the parents... Here's a good one, by the way. The pastor, in terms of something like midweek... Okay? The authority of the pastor in that sense, yes, I have, the, I have the call, I'm mandated to teach, but me teaching, there's nothing that says, oh, you must teach this way on a Wednesday night. I could teach any time, it doesn't have to be Wednesday night, so the fact that we meet together on Wednesday nights and that we're, and that we're doing this, that is an authority that I understand comes from parents that the parents will bring their children, that the parents will work with their children, all of that is coming from the parents. So even on that level, there is parental authority, according to the fourth commandment, that reigns. So, um, hmm, I forgot what I was going to say. Hmm. Well, must not have been very important in the words of Steve Martin. Yes. Coming from a family, my mother and her two sisters were school teachers. Mm -hmm. My first wife was a school teacher. Morse and his wife were teachers. I've got three daughters at school from school teachers. Uh, when you start talking about uh, parents as opposed to teachers, you you open Pandora's box there, uh, and I don't, and I, and I agree with you totally that the parents are the ultimate uh, authority, I guess. Yeah. And that you've ceded that. What has appeared uh, since I'm 80 years old and my dad was 30 years older than me, mm. so when I you talk about my dad's generation, born in 1913, he grew up sure. in the 20s and 30s, then how I was raised and how my kids were raised and what I see out there now and what my school teacher daughters talk to me about is the point that you made that parents have abdicated the responsibility of not just reading and writing and arithmetic, but then the moral aspect of yes and the classic example and i've met everybody in here that's 50 years or older 
had their dad tell them, as I recall very distinctly, the first day I walked out of the house at Corning to get on the school bus, my dad said, if you get a spanking at school, you'll get another one at home. No questions asked. And once in high school, I had a little problem, fairly small problem, and, and, and the superintendent said, you can either settle this right now or your parents can come in. And I said, I don't want my parents to have even know about this. And that was what the superintendent wanted to hear, was that the authority in that school was by the parents then transferred to the teachers to take care of that. Yes. What has happened that my generations then have come back and said is this, a, a, a generation of litigation, there must be a hundred different lawyers advertising for work. And if there's a problem at school, we hire a lawyer and go to the school because my kids were right. Out of a thousand times, they might have been right once or twice. The rest of the time, your kids were wrong, but they came home and told you what you wanted to hear or what they wanted this situation. It's wrong all the time. Case in point, my daughter that teaches science at Rockport says, I have a PTA every quarter and, a, and the 50 or 60 kids in all my different sections, I'll have two or three parents come to see if what I'm doing and how, how I'm doing it. My, old, my oldest daughter taught at Catholic parochial school in St. Louis and she said, totally different there hmm. because those fathers came to the PTA meeting and they quizzed me about what was going on. I didn't tell them what we were doing. They, they put the pressure on me. So in that culture, in that Catholic culture there, there was what I grew up in. But what we're seeing out here today is far from that. Yes. And I'll rest my case. Yeah, so this, you, you actually reminded me. everybody. Yeah. You, reminded me, you reminded me what I was, what I was going to ask, and that is, uh, why would a parent offer that authority to a teacher or to any other authority? So keep that, think about that question, because I'm probably going to forget it. So you remember, think about it, think about why a parent would do that, and I'm going to address this. And, and the fourth commandment issue here, too, is when, when the teacher is in the classroom, there is a fourth commandment in the classroom. Who do the children obey? The teacher as their mother and father. So you, you, you obey your mother and your father as you obey God. And you obey your teacher or whatever other authority as you obey your mother and father because there is that hierarchy of authority. You obey your parents as God because God has given them the authority and you obey your teachers as your parents because you, your parents have given them certain authority. So there is an authority that has to be there in the classroom and there has to be, you know, I, I'm not saying that when it comes to like your math class that because parents are the authorities, they have to be the ones to go in there and say, now here's how you're going to teach and this is what you're going to teach. And that's not what I'm, that's not what I'm trying to get at. Uh, so that brings me then to the question, why would parents confer authority on somebody like a teacher or like a midweek for midweek classes. Why would you do that? Yes, because most of the time you don't have the ability or sometimes skill or maybe even sometimes time to be able to fulfill your duties as parents in the fullest. And part of your duty as a parent is to educate your children, to train them up in the way that they should go. Now, what does that include? Well, there are differing opinions about that. As far as educational models go, I tend to be a fan of sort of the, the more classical style where you actually end up learning things like re rhetoric too, so that kids learn how to think and argue in a constructive way and hear something and not just believe it because somebody said it, you know, all, all of this stuff, but how do you raise up good, good moral children 
into good moral young men and women, responsible children, children who know how the world works, uh, that would include how the world works on a scientific level, on the material level, how do, what are the fundamentals of mathematics, how do I count, how do I communicate, how do I read, how do I learn? How do you teach someone how to learn? See, so does, does, is every parent equipped to be able to handle all of that? No, but every parent is responsible for it. So we have other institutions that we have raised up to assist parents in raising their children so that you as a mother or father don't have to be PhD in mathematics and English and literature and rhetoric and this and that and this, but you can say, let's go to school. And these people who actually have now studied in these areas and are equipped to be able to do that will assist me in the education of my children by sharing their knowledge. And I give them the authority to raise up my children. And in certain days, I even give them the authority to discipline my children. I don't know. This is my opinion on the matter. I think discipline is something that is lacking and necessary nowadays, but often teachers, e even the best teachers who, who actually want, who, who understand the authority that they have and, and want to be able to do well, are kind of hamstring, hamstrung, hamstringed, hamstrung, in, in what they are able to do in, in the classroom. Now that's a completely different problem. But the issue of something like morality who is really in charge of making sure your children know what is right and what is wrong? The parent. I mean, all of this is ultimately the parents, but especially when it comes to morality. Like, that is fundamental. And every parent can do that, especially if you're a parent in the church, because you are supposed to be raising up your children in the faith, teaching them the faith, and also modeling the faith. It doesn't matter how well you teach, if you're not actually living the faith and modeling it, nothing that you do or say matters. Now, in, in something like midweek, how do you, as a parent, train up your children in the very best way that you can in the faith? You take them to the pastor, because the pastor, like a teacher, is somebody who actually has specialized, a specialized ability to do that. You can read Bible stories with your kids, and you should. But if you actually, like if you want to talk shop about what the catechism means, what all of this stuff means in the Bible, where the catechism comes from, like, this is not me tooting my own horn, but who else can teach the catechumenate? Nobody here can teach the catechumenate. And that's part of my call. Part of the reason I am ordained, called and ordained, and sent here to be in this place is actually to do those very specific things. And so that's, that's the church's aid to parents in, in fulfilling their Christian parental obligation and, frankly, the baptismal obligation of bringing up children in the faith. So that the church isn't going to baptize babies and then say, well, parents, we uh, did our part, go ahead, go ahead and teach them. The, the church says, well, we're going to make disciples, and the way we do that is first by baptizing, but then also by teaching. And understanding that that church doesn't end when you walk out of the doors, because if I only see your kids for one or two hours a week, and you see them for, I don't know how many hours you see them, who's going to win in terms of the time contest? Well, it's not me. It's not the church. So church has to continue. So church has to be making disciples in the home and coming here to receive the, the teachings of the church from the person who is called to teach the teachings of the church. Bill and then Nancy. Go ahead. Okay, Nancy. One of the years that I was at Rockwood, I was out in my yard one evening and a couple of guys came by and one of them was the, a father of my, one of my kids that fall. Yes. We were visiting around and 
they, uh, he said, uh, are you going to have my daughter this coming year? I said, I don't know. I'm not the one that makes this, you know. He said, uh, if my daughter doesn't come home with an A on every paper and all of her grade cards, I'm going to be looking for you. <laughs> Say, I'll be looking for you, too. <laughs> I live 15 miles from Rockford. Uh -huh. He said, there are a lot of streets and roads that I'm going to be waiting in when you pass by. Oh, my goodness. And I'm going to run you off the road, and they're going to have to look for you. What a father. I'm glad that he takes it so, so uh, seriously. But anyway, I went to... <laughs> We, she says, I'm, we're going to go see Mr. Dalrymple. He was the superintendent. Uh, he said, you absolutely will not have her in here. <laughs> good. Pray, pray for good superintendents. Okay. If that guy would have thrown down a bug on her, he'd have found out something. <laughs> she would have tolerated that. I mean. I, I was home by myself. Yeah, right. Uh, I heard it. Kids say this all the time. Sure. Teachers got too many pets. So I told that, I asked Trudy that. I said, Trudy, you got too many pets? And she says, yeah, he can be one too. Try doing your homework. <laughs> <laughs> Look, okay, so here's the thing, right, parents? It's your responsibility, ultimately, to educate your children, which means if your children come home with homework, uh, or if your children are not getting a good grade, like, it's one thing if the entire class is getting Fs on everything that they do. Now, that's a teacher problem, okay? But if everybody's doing well and your child is just the only one who's getting bad grades, that's not really the teacher's fault. Work with the teacher, with the teacher, and work with your children. Take a vested interest in your children's education and actually do things with them. Don't say, go to your room and do your homework. Do it, sit at the kitchen table and do, your homework, do the homework with your kids at the kitchen table. That applies to midweek too. Why do you think I send a letter home, if you're not familiar with this, I send a letter home at the beginning of midweek every year. It's the same letter. I don't really change it. But I send the same letter home, but the whole letter is about this isn't just school, specifically with the church. This isn't just coming to school, doing assignments, blah, blah, blah. The homework that the kids get isn't homework. It's education in the faith, and who is responsible for that? Ultimately, parents are responsible for that with their children. So when your children come home and say, well, I've got to do these terms, or I've got to review this lesson, or I need to work on this catechism, spend 10 minutes a day doing it with them. I mean, my letter even says do it at the supper table or something like that. Because then if you've got a child in my class in like sixth grade, and you've got another second grader who hasn't come through midweek, but you're going through all of this together, you're teaching your whole family. And it's a, it's a family. There, everything has to be focused around the family and this aspect of family. What's the fundamental building block, the fundamental unit of society? The family. Not the individual, but the family. And it's the, you know, it's the parent's job to try and maintain that. The church is going to try and maintain it, but I can, I can talk to you all day every day. If you go and then don't, don't listen or, or do something else. I mean, I can't tell you, I can't go to your house and say, hey, you better shape up or else. What am I going to do? Okay. So family is important. The authority is the parental authority that is seated then, or not seated, but is um, given to other avenues to assist the parents. So the quote is in here, from, this is line 108 here in the, in the large catechism, if you ever want to look it up for the context. In other respects, people are indeed all equals in God's eyes, but among humans, there must necessarily be this inequality and ordered difference. Guess what? Inequality is not only okay, but it is encouraged in terms of authority. Not everybody can be the boss. Somebody has to be the boss. Somebody's got to have authority. You got to answer to somebody. The buck has to stop with somebody. We can't just have a one big circle where nobody ever takes responsibility for things. 
I know sometimes that's the easy way and you know perhaps you see that in your employment situation or in the US government or wherever where well nobody's really taking responsibility and we just all keep acting like Adam and Eve. Well, Shay did it. Well, the Chapman did it. Well, I don't know who did it. Oh, who's in charge? I don't know. I'm not in charge. Not me. You're in charge. I'm not in charge. See, somebody just take the responsibility and use it. There, there's that structure on purpose. Okay. Well, we didn't get very far. <laughs> All right. We'll see you at the altar. What's that one great letter when he talks to him? He said, I don't give grades, I just record your performance. <laughs>